0: Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do.
1: G'day Nana. how are you? Good
0: thing, Andrew, how are
1: you? Oh look, I, as we go through the cases today, I think, um, what are we saying? It's Owen Wilson. It's sort of dumb and dumber really, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's mostly, we've, we've chosen the cases today from the employer side, just to sort of show you, because there's not much new law in it. No. But just to show you, if you hadn't done this right, we would never be here.
0: No. And they're little
1: things, like getting policies right. They're they're just getting a contract, reading the contract, you know, things like that.
0: Lack of common sense.
1: Yeah, lack of common sense. And then we just put one crazy union man in for a bit (laughs) of fun, okay?
0: But it shows that, you know, people are back. There are so many cases, as you'll see this week, so everyone is well and truly back.
1: No, they are. They're all taking silly tablets. (laughs) So why don't we just start off and go through cutting corners and validating an EA, which is the um, S&D logistics case.
0: Yeah, meat
1: company. Yeah, it's a meat company. Very common can I say in closely held family enterprises that there's a, a level of complacency around the law, particularly around statutory obligations of, you know, 21 days from the date you notice of intended bargaining through to when you can actually take something to a vote and when you yeah. put it to a vote. You must provide people with the relevant documents for the vote and explain them for within a seven-day period, then you vote.
0: But the weird thing is in this case... Not this case. They actually, but like to an extent, they were following the rules and then up towards the end, so then they're like, yeah, nah, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> yeah, because
1: it was all done in one day, the, the voting part, wasn't
0: it? Yes, yeah, so they had properly bargained with the union and everything. They properly gave the materials and explained the differences, but then gave all employees one day... Notice and that the the vote was coming the next day, which, as we know, is a breach of the access period because you need seven clear days from letting them know.
1: So, look, can I just remind you when you give access in the access period, make sure if it's underpinned by an award, you make the award available. And when you're identifying the differences from the time before and the meaning of clauses, do it in a table, which Mm. is documentary, which you can attach to your affidavit. If you don't do that and you've got a union on the other side, you're going to be challenged about the validity if they didn't get their own way on the vote.
0: Yeah, it was a costly mistake because they, I think they they, off, they paid the employees a $1,000 bonus for voting it up and all this other stuff, but now it's been invalidated and they'll have to do
1: it again. <laughs> Good luck to them. All right, so next case as I go through, because we've got a lot on today, yeah. is CFMEU and the Fair Work Ombudsman.
0: I find this one really funny because the CFMEU in their typical – behaviour rocked up to a site with the proper permits but refused to do a site induction sign in yeah didn't sign in i don't know why they refused and then ignored safety directions and went into a restricted area and climbed up a a mobile plan i think like that and so the fair work ombudsman brought a case against them because they'd breached work health and safety directions and had hindered the operation of the business
1: and the bottom line is at the end of it the court said look you did breach safety things, and that's mm-hmm. never acceptable, even yeah. though your policies and procedures. But as to escorting them or not escorting, all these sort of issues. It was
0: a technicality.
1: Technicality. But what it comes down to is when someone comes onto your site, as a matter of safety, they must sign in so a person is known to be on the site.
0: And be inducted for yeah, the site. Yeah,
1: and be inducted. A person refused to do that, you're allowed to refuse it. Mm-hmm. But you must have a process which is for everyone, including union delegates, when yeah. a union organisers when they come on site, and there must be a part that says union organisers, these are your obligations. Now, remember, if you use the word escort, that's fine, but when they're carrying on conversations with people, you need to make sure that escort, escorting doesn't mean that you've got your ear right next to them. Yeah. So I want you to think it through, but this is a case where they lost on... The escorting part of it, yeah,
0: because it said accompanied, and they were watching the union delegate yeah. do everything. So yeah. they're like, that satisfies that definition. Yeah. It's not escorting, which is what they intended to do, but they didn't put it into the policy.
1: So remember, someone comes onto your site, they sign in. Why do they sign? Because we know they're there. Without that, we're unaware of who's present on our side at a particular time. Secondly, they are inducted. Third, your document says that they will be escorted. To the relevant areas are not to proceed into any hazardous area. Mm. Without, you know, Prevision. without appropriate risk yeah. assessment, and you've got to do it right. And then you didn't have a case which empowered the union. You had a case that empowered you. Yeah, exactly. So big difference. Okay, this is a yeah, workers' comp case. Point. Our next case coming up, which is money. What happened is the employee in this case witnessed a terrible incident. Yeah. They developed post-traumatic stress disorder. Very common in post-traumatic stress disorder to start developing things which are called overvalued ideas where you start being particularly worried about things. You have terrible nightmares, they seem very real. And at times they'll drift into a psychotic episode where they lose reality. And that's usually because PTSD is underwritten by depression that occurs. This is a case which is about narratives. This is a person who suffered something that was terrible
0: yeah, so they witnessed someone in a work safe yeah. incident and they thought they had passed away.
1: They thought they passed away. They developed PTSD. Nobody doubted that. Then they developed these psychotic episodes and the employer, rather than sitting back and thinking carefully about and getting some good advice about what this could be, then relied on saying, well, schizophrenia is, not we think they've got schizophrenia, schizophrenia is unrelated to this issue. That's actually not true. Prodramal stages of schizophrenia are commonly triggered by serious events in any event. But here, the correct diagnosis was depression, and so the claim is a valid claim and was supported. But why would you do that to someone who's been injured? The point of this story is this is so dumb because, yeah. you know, if Nina had been injured in the accident, whether it was physical or emotionally, my first interest is Nina. My second thing is, well, look, what is it that we do to assist her? And part of that will be gaining an accurate diagnosis to assist her. I'll not be trying to say, oh, no, she's already got schizophrenia because <laughs> they had no evidence of past schizophrenia. This was a leap of faith to avoid yeah. pain. It's just done. And
0: it's just cost them more in the long Again, term. So,
1: as Cutting corners never works. Yep. So let's go on to the next one. Ashburn, Mary's Rugby League Club.
0: Oh, this is just stupid. Like this was actually stupid behaviour. Well, this the,
1: from everyone was stupid behaviour.
0: This is the one with the vaccine, right?
1: Yeah. Oh no 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 no. no, no, I'm, no, no, I'm skipping no, no. Ahead of time. No no, you're, you're getting way ahead of the really really stupid. No, this is the one where a guy formed a relationship with a woman internally in the business. As a result, of that. No shit. no
0: no no. This is the vaccine one. Yes. Yeah. This. Yeah. This no. Is, oh wait, we skipped no, their no. I'm so confused. Oh, it's we switched them around.
1: You switched them around. That's I can't okay. believe. Laura. <laughs> I was like,
0: this is definitely vaccine. Okay, well, this one is they had information that there might be COVID vaccine shutdown for the Department of Education in New South Wales. And so they decided to tell their employees that you better get vaccinated and have two COVID That's vaccinations. Quite yeah. Otherwise being... police would come and get you. That's, right. That's what they said. And they had no confirmation it was happening. And they just basically, this one employee who wasn't going to get vaccinated got quite distressed by the threat and filed a workers comp claim yeah. which was very fair in this case rejected
1: on first instance but accepted oh, on the second one but once again why would you do so I And mean, there's a whole department saying look i know they're in fear and, I, and things are going wrong and they're trying to trying to leverage people into getting vaccination because it was a requirement of government both state and federal but there's but, a
0: way to do it
1: yeah well i think the answer is called consultation yeah and there was no consultation no, there's a series of, <laughs> yeah a series of increasingly coercive directions which were tainted by untruth at the end of it. So, one, I didn't know that case was coming now, but we managed to get through. You know, so, <laughs> so we're back into it. We're back in the saddle. Now we're back, we're into back the same in the Mary saddle. Time. Let's have the next one and just see what it is.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: there. Uh, here we are. It's Ashburn. Yeah, this is so. What we're about. This is this is a sort of weird case, isn't it? It's a you know an employee and a club form a guy forms a a friendship with a woman in the club. She discloses things which are of intimate nature. Yeah,
0: and that she'd been sexually harassed by one of the other managers and, and he used that against her.
1: Yeah, then he falls out with her a bit and then calls her terrible names and uses the private information he obtained to harass and harm her. Yeah,
0: he said to someone and it, I was so shocked I like when, when I read get, it. I love the high dudgeon. No, <laughs> he literally said to someone else, why don't you get molested like her? Look. How could you possibly say that in the workplace and think it's okay?
1: He didn't go well. What he did argue is this, and that is, look, he had no knowledge of the policies and stuff around it, and the Fair Work Commissioner said, well, I didn't quite say, if you're that dumb, I can't believe it, (laughs) because you knew what you were doing was wrong. Anybody would know what they were doing is wrong. But it's a good point, again, that there are cases when The failure to provide appropriate policy training like working at heights and things can be a really big issue because people haven't been appropriately trained. So policy training and proof of training and competency is critical. But when there's been fundamental breaches of obvious obvious behaviours, the policy is not going to rule the day. One of the other things is these cases come through with some interesting stuff. The court was, or the tribunal, was critical of the fact to failure to pay properly particularise allegations.
0: Yeah, so it was around procedural fairness, about yeah. why they lost.
1: Yeah. yeah, so I just want you to remember when you're out there, that was a valid reason, no doubt about it, but did it end up, at the end of the case, did they lose on fairness because the yeah. procedural fairness was So it was what? valid
0: reason, but it was harsh because yeah. there was a lack of procedural fairness. Remember, they terminated him for breaching sexual harassment in the policy, which is quite serious allegations. So they didn't really have enough to meet Brigginshaw and the fact that they didn't particularise the allegations, the fact that they didn't intervene sooner because there had been many multiple incidents which had built up. And if they didn't intervene sooner, it would never So have let's talk about two of
1: those concepts because they're worth doing. So Brigham Shaw is a case in the 1930s that said that when the more serious the matter is on the balance of probabilities, the clearer you've got to be with the validity of the evidence. So you've, you've got to be satisfied. It's still only 50%, but you've got to be looking at real evidence. You've got to satisfy yourself with the level of clarity that the evidence you're relying on is proper evidence. And as Nina says in this case, not quite there. But the second concept, which unfortunately this tribunal and many others don't discuss, is condemnation, which is if Nina's aware I've done bad things and she lets them go, lets them go, and then one day says, no, you're not allowed to do that. In law, that's actually called waiver. You've waived an entitlement to actually prosecute a claim, to prosecute an issue against me. We call it in workplace law uh, condonation. So here you've got condonation, you've got failure to particularise so a person can't properly respond to the allegations, mm. clear unfairness, and finally you've got a very an allegation cast too high Yeah. when it all mm. had to do was to say you're in breach of your code of conduct in that you did the following things and that would have been enough to get you across the line for termination.
0: Yeah, so it very small errors that unravelled the whole thing. Like it, had they just done those things, particularised it, intervene sooner, then they would have been on very strong grounds to win.
1: Yeah, and if they had picked the right thing to allege, (laughs) which is not sexual harassment but just bad behaviour and breach of conduct. It was was just misconduct, yeah. All right. Now, Bega. The seven-day shift worker. The seven-day shift worker. So this isn't um, Bega who does the dumb thing. This is the union, and I really put this in for fun. One of the things that most employers don't do often enough is go back and and read their award.
0: (laughs) Most? I think, like, majority.
1: <laughs> and I know, that's sort of not giving you a whack. I mean, it's pretty hard to dig through and actually work out what is in an award just for payroll in a day to day, let alone on how you manage and structure a workplace. But an allegation was brought by the union in this case that said, look, it's a seven day roster when the person only work Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, which was clearly a fixed roster, not a seven day roster because it wasn't a roster that, that went through the seven days. You'll be stunned to find out that the, although there is some old law that sits around this that makes it a little bit more complex than it really seems, common sense, by looking at that for the union, I'm not saying unions have common sense, would have said, gee, we're on shaky ground on this. If we lose this, we're going to look like idiots. Yeah. Well, that's the story of this case. The union (laughs) look like idiots, and it's not a seven-day roster. Okay? No.
0: It's so silly. They shouldn't have brought
1: it. Okay. Felcher. Next case, strong room technology. We've got, we've got so many cases to go through today.
0: I think this is the last one, though. Is it?
1: Oh, yeah, it is, but then we get on the main topic.
0: But this one was also a silly case. So he was a director trying to claim he was an employee and entitled to heaps of things, and he was like, I receive pay slips, my title is executive director, and I do all these jobs, but then he provided no evidence of any of it, and his contract Made it clear he was only director.
1: Yeah, so look, this comes back to personnel and JAMSAC and the High Court. Can I just say those cases are good law, which says, and the High Court at the moment is a relatively black letter lawyers, they're not too interested in policy. And what they've said is look, the way you determine what a person does is to look at people's mutual intention at the time of entering into a contract. Now, that is the law for every form of contract that exists throughout law, okay, that you look at the time yeah. that you enter into it. So no surprises there. Very different than what used to be done before, which is, say, we you, you look at a bundle of circumstances that sit around that contract after it has been executed determine what is the contract. Now, that's clearly a nonsense analysis, and it's one that's been driven by unions and left-leaning judges for a long time that say, look, if you don't do it that way, you're going to end up with a sham, okay? So, what the High Court said is there are two circumstances when you can look beyond the original contract. One, when you have objective evidence of a sham, and the second is where the contract is significantly ambiguous and therefore to determine what are the terms, you need to look at conduct. Again, they are matters which are recognised in all areas of law. So, this is really applying a uniforming principle across workplace that exists in all law. Unfortunately, our federal government wish to go back and change that to the old bundle of rights argument and so it's likely later in the year the Fair Work Act will be amended to try and circumvent the High Court decisions, which will be a great pity and hopefully won't succeed. But in this case, this is a director's contract. Remember, titles in a contract don't matter unless the contract says they matter. Yeah. They're really words of explanation. They're not operative terms in themselves. Does that make sense? So if I say remuneration and then I talk to you about leave underneath, the remuneration doesn't mean anything. It's just a title. What comes underneath are the operational terms of the agreement. The other part which people don't use when there is some complexity is they fail to go to what's called the background or the recitals to the agreement, which should set out the evidence that demonstrates the role the person has and why, if there's any risk, didn't happen in this case, so all you had was the clear words of the contract, which, can I say, when you read it, are uncomplicated, direct and enforceable, and so that's what the court held. Can you see from what i have done, correct policy, correct contract, reading an award correctly? There's a whole lot of really simple stuff we dealt with today which requires 10 to 15 minutes of considered thought and yeah. strategically in the setting up of processes to look carefully at what is the nature of the risk both in safety and in people risk, and create contracts and policies that cover those risks, stops unions at the door, mm. stops people saying that they're an employee when they're a contractor, it does all those things. It just requires reflection, structure, and then enforcement of structure. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. All right. right we'll get to the main topic. Main topic. <laughs> and we don't have a lot of time in the main topic, and it is in some ways quite short, but it is fascinating.
0: It's a really interesting matter.
1: So. In short, starting off with France and then spreading through most of Europe and in other parts of the world, now in places like Kenya as well, there is this recognition that some pre-COVID but certainly post-COVID and the change in technology and remote working has placed a permeable barrier between work and non-work and so work keeps infiltrating yeah, into the non-area. It's
0: hard to switch off, basically.
1: As, and that is in its nature a psychological hazard. Yeah. So what the Greens have done in the Parliament in Australia is push a, an amending piece of legislation which says, in simple terms, you may not contact a person outside of their normal working hours
0: No, it's, with exceptions. It's, no, no, it's not that you can't contact them, that an employee has the right to not have to look at that stuff during out-of-work hours. Yeah. So you can. That's that's a weird... They haven't right. clarified that. Yeah, that's where like you're going to land. Where you're going
1: to yeah. land is, I didn't ask for this, and you did it, workplace right, you got a you immediately at that stage going to have an, a general protections claim. Once you create this as a workplace right and entitlement, it's going to become a leverage point for litigation. So it's, can I just say, look, we're lawyers. Nina and I will be communicating at 7.30 in the morning. We'll be communicating sometimes at 9 or 10 o'clock at night because you're on the other side needing stuff done by 6 o'clock the next morning. Nina's got some ways around this that she'll talk yeah. to you about, but well, can I just say this is a dumb way of trying to fix a problem which can be fixed so many other ways, which is to say the obvious way to fix this is to say to people and to actually put into legislation, psychological hazards include speaking to people out of hours of matters which aren't relevant, aren't part of their normal course of employment. That would be unidentified psychological. And so people would reflect. But by putting arbitrary things saying don't, then you start getting people like them saying, well, I know how to get around this. And the way to get around this is a set-off course.
0: Yeah, because what they've said is employees don't have to look at their emails in out-of-work hours unless there's an emergency or unless they get what's called an availability allowance, which they haven't specified how much, but they should be getting paid this extra amount to basically be on call. But like I was saying to Andrew before, it's a silly solution because most employers will just use an offset clause because the kinds of employees who would be working in out of hours would be paid well and truly above any award and so they'll just say yep your set of clause means that your overall salary includes all these things and they'll just slip the allowance in there it's not going to make any difference like I understand the intention behind it and it's to ensure that employees aren't negatively or adversely treated if they need time to themselves because, you know, there's examples where employers will basically verbally abuse them because they didn't respond or something because they were at a family event or whatever. So I can understand, like, the intention, but I don't think this is going to solve no. any problems. Can I just
1: say, for Australia, unfortunately, when Labor governments become highly directionary in the nature of the way work is controlled, and there's some really good policy that sits behind it, but the problem is... Regulating human behaviour by putting 75 closed doors doesn't make a workplace work. New Zealand, 15 years ago, wrote beautiful corporations securities law where what they did was identified issues of risk mm-hmm. and they legislated risk management in a process rather than saying don't, 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 don't. Did it make it harder to prosecute? No, it didn't make it harder to prosecute. Were people more aware of the risk of what they were doing? Yes, they were. Was the legislation this thick compared to this thick? Yes, in New Zealand compared to our Corps Act, it was a clever way of legislating, but what we see is governments that come in which have a legislative mandate to change invariably start writing no, whether it's putting an organisation to prosecute unions, the Liberal side of it, whether it's and requiring that prosecution or whether it's Labor coming in and protecting workers rights. Saying no and punishing rarely works in the way you expect it to work.
0: Yeah, I suspect what you'll see is that if employees are acting in that manner anyway, it would be unreasonable management action. So employees would have rights under workers' comp. But doing this new system, it's essentially giving them free rights as long as they pay them this tiny allowance to take advantage of that. That's exactly right.
1: And isn't it funny that Nina thought of that first? So no one else has talked about using a set-off clause to get around it, but Nina did. (laughs) That's why she works for employers. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Unions don't like me.
1: <laughs> Why don't we go on? I tell to what, this, the case this study screen very is quickly. good. It gives me a white satin shirt. It gives me it's not linen, but I look like I'm I'm a godlike figure, <laughs> sort of. Ugly but godlike. Okay, let's go on.
0: There was much talk about Fun To Fun about how to manage remote work while in COVID. FFF built industry-based investment funds for client investment. They often involved offshore industries within the funds. Miriam was the head of the Alternative Energy Fund. It had institutional investors from Australia and Asia. Miriam supervised around 30 staff. She had leaders beneath her and had five direct reports. She found COVID a great reset for her. She had three young children and an aged and infirmed mum. She was able to work around them and the learning from COVID had brought significant changes in the way she and her team worked. In 2023, FFF did a wide-ranging consultation around remote work, protection of home time and work time and published some guidelines. Those guidelines were discussed at Fund Leader Level, Miriam's Level. The consensus was at that level there needed to be clarity around work times and clear boundaries. All had worked in the banking industry before and knew the risks. In December 2023, a new policy was rolled out. It prohibited contact after 8pm at night or on weekends unless there was an emergency. Miriam didn't attend the rollout of the policy. She knew there were limitations she needed to comply with but was not sure what they were. Her groups had always embraced flexibility, had overseas investors who communicated every hour of the day and night, and she valued the relationship she had created with them by responding as soon as possible. In January of 2024, Miriam launched a subfund around wind generated power. There was a first round invitation to funding, and she and Dave, her offsider, worked all hours to secure the capital raising. Dave politely raised a few times that he was struggling with the midnight conferences and deadlines as he had a young family and a wife who was a medical resident and worked odd hours too. On 27th of January, Miriam couldn't reach Dave. She knew he was alone looking after the kids as he explained by message late Friday night. His wife was working the full weekend shift. She stayed at the hospital. Yes, Saturday was a non-work day, but she was under pressure. She left increasingly agitated voicemails and texts. She rang one of Dave's friends at work and got his private number. She rang Dave on his private number and he answered. She told him how unhappy she was, became angry and abusive, and Dave hung up. Dave complained to HR sending texts, voicemails, and recording of her phone call on his private phone. He was very distressed. His two-year-old daughter had been up all night in the ER with terrible colic. He had just got her to sleep when he received the call. He was worried about his child and had no sleep himself. Despite everything that happened, he answered her questions up until 11pm the night before but logged off when his daughter became very unwell. When HR spoke to Miriam, she said she'd never seen or been trained in the policy. Of course she said that.
1: Of course she said that. Well, let's just accept she's true. Let's go and have a look at the questions. Did her failure to be trained in the policy or know its content mean she could escape discipline?
0: I feel like, like, strictly speaking under law, it would give her some leeway, but it's pretty Not obvious She's a leader. that it's a psychological hazard.
1: Yeah, and look, as a leader, one of the things that leaders forget is they're the people who normally don't follow policies, Yeah. but <laughs> as a matter of organisational structure, they're the people who are required to lead it. Courts and tribunals don't like leaders who haven't read their own policies, so the short answer would be they'd say yes, but no cigar and she would be in trouble. So a court would support any discipline process that was taken, particularly because of the greariously bad behaviour that occurred in the last part of it at a time she knew of the vulnerability of the person. So as Nina said, it's not only a psychological hazard, it is a profound psychological habit given the knowledge that he had. Was Miriam's conduct a psychological hazard regardless of the policy? I've said yes. Is it a breach of safety law and who would be liable and what for? More of an interesting question because... There's no doubt at all, if Miriam is not inducted and trained, that's a breach of the safety system, Section 21 Victor, section. Yeah, 21 so the organisation be liable. Yeah, so the organisation would definitely be liable. But actually, Miriam's behaviour, particularly after codes and rigs come in here, but if I looked at New South Wales, for instance, you'd be looking at category upper Category 2 in New South Wales. You'd be looking at a risk of reckless endangerment here.
0: I don't know if it would meet reckless endangerment.
1: Well, it meets the criteria, but does it meet... The business case for it
0: but it's it's only happened once
1: well it right, only has to happen once
0: no but in order to be like indifferent doesn't have to be like to meet the threshold no, no,
1: no, of diff- indifferent as to the consequence of what they did so so the risk is there she's aware of the risk of serious so, so let's start again what, what is the test for reckless engagement it's subjective objective so the first thing is was she objectively aware of a risk to the person yes yeah. okay subjectively with the knowledge of that risk was she careless about what she did did she not take into consideration the knowledge that she had
0: no she didn't
1: yeah so she meets the criteria and unfortunately recklessness in safety law has two objective parts and one subjective part which makes it really complex so the first thing is this a risk that pose serious risk of harm or injury yes it was was that a risk she was aware of subjectively Mostly yes, because she knew a she shouldn't be doing it. Mm. When she went to get the private phone, she was put on notice of how inappropriate what it was. Yeah. And when then she's abusive to a person who knows she's he's at the home alone with children, not knowing the illness part of it. Yeah. but has already told her several times, "I can't do this." Then you've got the criteria for reckless endangerment, but it's not big enough.
0: Yeah, there's no way they would prosecute her for reckless no. endangerment.
1: But I want the reason I want to do this is to say. When you've got the criteria for reckless endangerment, you've got the criteria for summary termination. So I just wanted to, Mm. so if you meet the definition of something that puts you in jail, even though it wouldn't be prosecuted, it's pretty serious, isn't it? Was her, that is Miriam's behaviour, breach of discrimination legislation given she knew Dave's family responsibilities and that she knew he was at home alone with kids on Friday and Saturday because his wife's work obligations? Yeah, definitely. Okay, so caring responsibility. This this is sort of direct discrimination.
0: Yeah, she hasn't accommodated it at all.
1: No. Again, is there going to be much of a claim that comes out of it?
0: Oh, uh, potentially. Potentially. Like, the I history think of it there's means more chances of him filing this than her getting prosecuted. Oh, there's, yeah, there's like no that.
1: chance of her getting prosecuted. Yeah. So it's pretty easy <laughs> to say that. I'm not sure it's one that many plaintiff lawyers would jump at because the the damages are pretty low unless there's a significant psychological sequence. The
0: discrimination damages are increasing.
1: But they need the impact.
0: Well, I think if... He could, if something happened after this, oh. then I think they would yeah, do that.
1: Yeah. So if we looked at that, general damages would start at this at around about thirty to forty thousand, but could be as high as seventy or eighty thousand dollars. Loss of income, special damages. Mm. If you didn't come back for four or five weeks, you used leave, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Could be a big claim. All right. Would Dave have a good workers' compensation claim? Yes. Mm-hmm. Made in Victoria, well, is he just stressed by work? No, this is a psychological hazard, so no. It's definitely a claim. unreasonable management. And
0: actually.
1: what would be the appropriate disciplinary outcome, particularly as we know Dave has not returned to work and feels very distressed and hurt by what happened? I've already answered that. Yeah. When I tell you what the threshold is in safety, and that's what you need to do is you need to look at what is the wrong, and if it's a criminal wrong, I'm afraid that's serious misconduct. Yeah,
0: so it's got to be for the unsafe nature, not just because she breached the policy. If breached no. policy, that's like a warning. Yeah, but you've but got discrimination, unsafe, yeah. you've, got,
1: you've got a crime and unsafe yeah. law, it's big stuff. To
0: get it to that next level, yeah. I reckon
1: we hit it today. We did pretty well. Even though they swapped a case on us, I reckon they might have been said not for it. Yeah, thanks for watching, guys. Yeah. <laughs> thumbs up. Give us a thumbs up. And thanks, everyone. Else. Bye. Cheers. Thanks, David Carter. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs>